0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Matthew chapter 19, we'll begin reading verse 16, and the word of the Lord reads this way. And behold, man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. The early church father Origen once wrote what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves this for him is God. And, uh, Here we are today. We're wrapping up our fourth and final part of this series titled Distracted and uh, uh, subtitled uh, Finding God in a Chaotic World. And as we talked about uh, the last week, the reason why we're in this series in the begin with um, is the fact that we are distracted. Um, If there's any adjective that could describe us as a generation, it could be that. Because we're distracted at home. We're distracted in our family time. We're distracted... At work, we're distracted when we drive. That's why April is distracted driving month. We're distracted when we uh, hang out with our friends. We're distracted when we watch TV because some of us want to watch TV and try to do social media at the same time. We're distracted in every part of our lives. But most importantly, we're distracted in our time with God. So often we'll try to go and and spend time with the Lord and pray and and then we'll try to get alone with him or even worship him. But then we, we lose focus on God. Right? Our minds begin to wander. We begin to think about all the other areas of our lives. We think about the to-do list that we have to do. We think of all the things and our responsibilities that keep creeping back into our minds. Or worse, if you don't find a place to put your technology, your technology will interrupt your time and distract you. Whether it's your phone or your tablet and social media and all the other apps. And, and we end up spinning our wheels instead of actually spending time with God. Or worse, we get so focused on all the other things that we have to deal with and all the other aspects of our lives that we, uh, we, we begin to f- forget that God's even there. We become disconnected from him. I mean, I, how many of you have, you know, in your own lives experienced the phenomenon when you come to the end of the day and realize, I didn't even like pray today. I didn't even think, think about God one time. Like, we, can, we can get so distracted it's like God's not even there. And, and as we talked about before in the early part of this series, that being so distracted really comes with a price, especially in our walk with God. When we're distracted in our relationship with God, we tend to lose sight of Christ, which means we lose sight of the gospel. And when that happens, we lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. Being distracted from God also causes us to start trying to live in our own power, by our own strength, forgetting that God has promised to be with us and for us and to guide us and to, to lead us. And even worse, being distracted from God also brings us to trials. When we're distracted from God, we can fall into sin and temptation. And in, in the first four, the few few weeks of this series, we talked about the fact that, that, that there are four areas that the Bible identifies for us, where we can be easily distracted from God when it comes to our relationship with Him. And the first place where we started was, it was identifying the fact that a lot of what distracts us isn't really necessarily bad things. It's just good things in our lives that get out of balance. Things like work, school, hobbies, sports, activities, even, even ministry can be something that consumes so much of our lives to the point that we, we actually don't spend time alone with God. And we discovered that the solution to this problem was to be intentional about our time with God. We need to be like Mary, like the the, the sister of Martha, and we need to make it a priority to get alone with God. It it needs to be an important part of our lives. The second thing we discovered is that that fear and our worries and our anxieties can be a distraction in our walk with God. Peter... You know, just like him, our fears can cause us to take our eyes off of Christ. He was walking on the water with Jesus and his fears caused him to lose sight of Christ and he began to sink. And we can be the same way. Our fears can cause us to lose sight of who Jesus is and it can cause us to then drown in our own circumstances and our own feelings and emotions. And this can affect not only our our emotions, but our physical health. It can affect our relationships. But most importantly, it affects our relationship with God. And what we discovered is the solution to that is we need to always continually keep our eyes on Christ. And the way you do that is to keep that appointment with God, to always make a point to spend time with him. You know, I know it sounds like a broken record, but that right there is the foundation of all the solutions, the second thing we need to do is preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves continually, you were saved by grace, dummy. Right? It's not about what you do. Right? It's God loves you so much, he's, he rescued you. We need to continually remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. And the third thing is we need to be like Peter. Is What we need to do is when we get, find ourselves being overwhelmed and we lose sight of Christ, we need to cry out to Jesus like Peter did. He said, Jesus, save me. We need to cry out to the Lord when we find ourselves overwhelmed by our circumstances. And then last week we talked about how how our own assumptions about God, what we bring to the table about beliefs can distract us from him. Like Peter, right, when he rebuked Jesus. Peter made a point to rebuke Jesus because his assumption about God didn't line up with what, what reality was. We can, we can have assumptions about God, about who he is, and what his plans are, instead of actually taking God at his word about who he is and what his plans are. You see, Peter actually refused to believe that Jesus would die, and he rebuked Jesus when he talked about it. And Jesus said to Peter, you're not setting your things, your, your, your mind on the things of God, but the, the things of man. Your mind is not in the right place. You're thinking about yourself and not what God's plan is. Your thoughts have become centered on you instead of God. And just like Peter, we're capable of the very same thing. We tend to make assumptions about God that are not based on what what the Bible says. We make assumptions about God based on what our culture says and what our upbringing tells us or even what our emotions say. And this can lead to huge distractions in our walk with God. Things like the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is this assumption that God exists as a cosmic butler to give you what you want. That that's his whole purpose. If you will have enough faith that God will give you everything that you desire. That's a false assumption. Or how about legalism? Legalism. Legalism is the idea that, that, that somewhere, somehow, I might be saved by grace, but I still got to do something to make God love me, and so do you. You need to follow my rules. That's legalism. Or, or um, sentimentality is the assumption that, you know what? The only attribute about God that matters is the fact that he, he's love, that, that, he, that God is love, so it doesn't matter that he's justice or that he is also Holy. And that because God is love, then God's never mad at anybody and he'll never send anybody to hell in spite of what the Bible actually has to say. Or the assumption of mysticism, this, this assumption that my feelings and my intuitions are actually more true than what the Bible itself has to say. Or the assumption of consumerism, that my faith and being a part of the church is about me and me consuming something rather than me being built up and made into the image of Christ, and then going out into the world to share the hope of Christ with the world. These are really big distractions based on some assumptions, false assumptions that we bring to the table. And they can be a huge hindrance in our own individual walks, and they can also be a hindrance to the mission of Christ itself. And what we discovered is the solution to this, besides keeping that appointment every day with God, is to be in the Word. If you want to know what God's, you know you want to get past your false assumptions, you need to know what the truth is. And the way you learn the truth is to be in the Word, which means you need to read it, study it, meditate on it, and also do it. When you find out that God says to do something, you need to do it. And so <clears throat> these distractions, these false assumptions, again, can hinder us in our, our walk with Christ. Now, as we mentioned before, this is a super-fast review of a lot of ground that we've covered over the last several weeks. We've talked a lot about these subjects here. And I want to encourage you, if you missed any part of this, take some time. You can go to our SoundCloud page or our website and get caught up. I promise you, this, more of what we t- talk about today will make sense, and you will benefit from it. But this week, I want, to, I want to talk to you probably about the linchpin of this entire series. In fact, the distraction we're going to talk about today is probably the most important one. That's why I saved it for the last... In fact, of all of this series, if there's anything that you remember in this series, in fact, if you think about this series like two years from now, you go, wasn't that like pastor did some series on being distracted and there was a pink background? Remember that? Yeah. What did he say? Well, if there's anything that you remember that we talk about, then today is the day that you're going to want to remember. The things that we talk about today are the things that you really want to hold on to. Um, It will... Be important to your relationship with God, assuming that you have a relationship with him. And so turn with me to the book of Matthew. Uh, we're going to look at this text again in verse nine, I mean, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. The, uh, the word says, <clears throat> And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept these. I mean, I mean all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now I want you to notice in this exchange here. The man's asking Jesus about inheriting eternal life. And, and Jesus explains to him the requirements of the law. And uh, he, you know, the thing is, is, Jesus doesn't really get to the heart of the matter just yet. In fact, you know, he, you know, he doesn't say, you, know, you need to realize that you're a sinner and that you need to realize that you can't you know, overcome that by yourself, that you fall short of the glory of God. And the, the only way that you can fix that is to put your faith in me and be saved. He doesn't go there. Right? In fact, what he does is he, he he says, You need to keep the commandments. Now, why does Jesus actually take this approach? I mean, because this is not the approach that we, we would take. This is not the approach that we were taught to take. So why does Jesus go this direction? Well, the reason why is because Jesus knows there's something wrong with this man's heart. Jesus is trying to bring him to a place where he can see what the real problem is. And the problem isn't his behavior. It's not what he's doing. The problem is his heart. You see, you will hear me say over and over and over and over again, Jesus did not come to change your behavior. He didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. Your broken relationship with God isn't about your faulty behavior. Your broken relationship with God is about your sinful heart. That's the truth that Jesus is driving at for this young man in this conversation. You see, you, you can modify your behavior. You can get people to, to change what they do. You can get people to follow rules and keep all the regulations and commandments and, and expectations. But still, their heart can be filled with pride and envy and bitterness and greed and lust and hatred and selfishness. You can get somebody to do what you want them to do. But, but their heart can still be in the wrong place. So Jesus didn't come To change how you act, he came to change your heart. And that's what he's trying to get at here with this young man. That's why this man asks Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you need to follow the law. You need to keep the commandments, which sounds strange to us. But Jesus has a point that he's making here. And notice what the man says. He says, I've followed the law, right? Jesus, I've done that. I've kept the commandments. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, the man says, I've kept the commandments since I was I was a youth, which means I've been doing this for years. Jesus, I have, have been keeping that checklist. I've been keeping the rules for years. But then notice what the man says. What do I still lack? Now, this is a really important facet because, because inside of this man, even though he keeps the law, he knows that there's something missing, that there's something wrong. He knows that there's not something right inside of him. In, in, inside of him, he knows that following a bunch of rules... That's not getting him to heaven. That's not getting him to eternal life. And so he realizes that his religiosity and his good behavior are not enough to save him. Instinctively, he knows that what he's doing is not enough. Like the reformer Martin Luther discovered, right? the more, he, more religious he became, the more he tried to make himself right with God by his own efforts, by, by doing all the rules, the more he realized that he was failing and he realized that he was lost. And so I can't help but to think that this man right here is at the same point that he's thinking to himself, there's got to be something more. That all the efforts to keep the law by myself are not going to get me where I want to go. And so we asks, what more must I do to be saved? But notice, Jesus, he doesn't say, put your faith in me. He doesn't say, repent of your sins and trust in me for salvation, which is exactly what we would expect him to say as good evangelicals, Right? Because that's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is that you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner and that, you're, that you cannot save yourself, that you actually repent of your sins. You turn from your sins and then put your faith and trust in Christ. That's the gospel. You believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he's God in the flesh, and that he, 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 that, that he died and rose again, proving that your, your sin has been paid for by him and that you have been forgiven and that you spend the rest of your life trusting him and following him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But, but here in this instance, Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't talk about that. In this instance, he says something else. He actually gives this man another command to follow. Now, why? That's always a good question to ask when you come to a text and something seems out of place. Is ask the question, why? Well, well the, the reason why is this man's problem is that he's very distracted See, he thinks he has a relationship with God, but he's very distracted because this man thinks he's right with God. That all of his deeds that he does, you know, that, that he's following all these rules, that all he needs to do is figure out another rule to follow to make sure he's right. But Jesus says that, that, he, that he needs to do something else. Jesus needs to help him see the issue isn't what he's doing, the issue is something deeper, it's his heart. Because think about this. Jesus could have just said, follow me and believe in me and be saved. But that really wouldn't have addressed the issue. It would have dealt with his heart. I mean, think about this. The truth is, Jesus already had people following him that weren't even saved. Just think about Judas. Judas was with him three and a half years. Judas witnessed him perform miracles. Judas watched him walk on water. Judas himself at some point in the past would have said, I believe in Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I mean, he watched him perform miracles. He would have said, I I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But make no mistake, Judas was not saved. Because something was still wrong with his heart. And not just him. It wasn't just like one person. If you read John chapter 6, you will notice that Jesus begins to teach about the bread of life. And this is a teaching that offends a lot of people Because of some of the things that they say that Jesus says, they don't understand. And so they struggle with with this teaching and they stop following him. In fact, it says, John 6, uh, verse 66, it says, And after this, many of his disciples turned his back and no longer walked with him. And, And these were disciples. These were people that said that they believed in Jesus. They watched him do miraculous things. They thought they followed him. They thought that they were saved, but they weren't. They walked away from From Jesus. And the reason why was their hearts weren't changed. Their behavior may have changed. What they did externally may have changed. But their hearts didn't change. And it's the same here. The man thought that he was following God. That by keeping the rules he could be right with him. And so he asked Jesus, what more do I need? And Jesus, he doesn't want to give him false hope. So he answers the question in a way that really gets to the heart of the issue. He says, if you would be perfect. And the idea isn't like moral perfection here. That's not what it's talking about. It means to be complete, like you attain the goal of eternal life, All right? If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to notice in this. Jesus says to go sell everything and give it away. Now, why does he tell him this? Because you and I both know that selling all your possessions is not what gets you into heaven. We we know that, right? We know, right, that giving money to the poor is not the way to get into heaven. I mean, we should absolutely be generous. All of us should be generous. But that is not what gets you to eternal life. That's not what saves you. So what's, what's the point here? Well, Jesus' point is as he says, if you would do this, you would have treasure in heaven. And this is an important key because when you look at that, you realize Jesus has talked about this before. right? We have seen this before. If you've read the book of Matthew, you would know that Jesus spent some time talking about this very subject right here. All the way back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where, for where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in, in and steal, for where your treasure is, here's the key, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus is trying to tell this man, you know, you might, you might have kept the rules and you might have followed the law, but man, your heart is in the wrong place. Your heart really isn't even set on heaven. Your heart is actually set here on earthly things. I mean, I believe that you do want to go to heaven and you want eternal life, but your heart is set on the wrong thing. It's in the wrong place. You might think that heaven is what you want, but that's not what your real treasure is. What your real treasure is, something else. Jesus continues to say in verse 22, the eye is the uh, is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light is in you is darkness, then how great is the darkness, And then he says no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that's what he's trying to tell this man. Your heart is set on the wrong things. Your heart is in the wrong place. Yes, I believe you want to go to heaven. Yes, you follow the rules. But you do so with the wrong motives. You do so with the wrong ideas there's something in your heart there's something in you that's preventing you from fully devoting yourself to me there's something in you that's keeping you from selling out and actually really following me and that is your wealth you're so in love with your wealth and your stuff your wealth is actually more important to you and that's the problem And so Jesus says, unburden yourself from that. Everything that you have and give it to the poor. That way there's nothing in the way. That there was nothing in the way of of your heart being devoted to me. And notice the man, how he responds. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Hear that. That's, That's very emphatic. He was sorrowful. Like almost weeping. He was deeply upset by this. He wants eternal life but he can't have it. Why? Because he has great possessions. Now understand, I want you to hear me on this. It wasn't the fact that he was rich. That was the issue. That was not the problem. The problem was, it wasn't his wealth, right? The problem is that his wealth became more important to him than God himself. That's the problem. The problem is wealth became more important than God. God, See, wealth itself is not intrinsically bad. There's nothing wrong with someone being rich. It's what it was at his heart, what his heart was doing with the wealth. But that was the problem. His heart valued his wealth more than eternity with God. He loved money more than he loved God himself. That's why Jesus told him, sell all your stuff, give it away and follow me. That's how you can have eternal life. Turn away your heart from your riches and put your full hope and trust in me and you can have eternal life. And the man demonstrates exactly where his heart is because he turns and walks away from the Savior himself, from eternal life because he couldn't get his heart over his money. You see, the problem is when we become distracted from God, when we value anything or love anything or worship anything, Above God. And that's exactly what's happening here. This man is distracted from God because he loves money and he loves wealth more than he loves God. He loves his possessions more than he loves God. Now understand, he may indeed actually love God. He may have deep feelings for God, but he loves his wealth more. He loves the gifts more than he loves the giver. Which is really the root of this issue here. The root of, of misplaced love is, is, is that this distraction comes about when we love the gifts more than the giver of the gifts. When we come to God for the things he can give us rather than for God himself. When our hearts' affections for other things begin to grow greater than our love for Christ. When we want stuff more than we want God himself. We have become distracted from God. We lose sight of him. We lose connection to him whenever we we love other things more than God. And as we talked about, right, we talked about how how being distracted from God carries with it big consequences, like losing sight of the gospel and, and trying to walk in our own strength and falling into temptation and sin. But there's another consequence of this particular distraction, and that is idolatry. When our affections grow for anything more than God, we begin to fall into idolatry. Because idolatry is defined as anything we value or love or worship more than or put in place of God. Idolatry is where we love other things more than God. Where we value things more than God. When we worship other things and other people more than we do our Savior. When God is not our supreme affection in our hearts. When that happens, we have slipped into idolatry. That's that's what's happened here to this man. His wealth became an idol to him. He loved his wealth more than he loved God. He valued his wealth so much that he's willing to like, walk away from eternal life. This, this is his particular idolatry, and this led him to reject Christ and, and the offer of, of eternity. What a, what a devastating consequence. Kim and I have had friends in the past where we've talked to them about, about Christ and their, their answer has been, I'm not interested in that because I don't want to give up some stuff in my life. Their idolatry kept keeps them from a saving relationship with Christ. But hear me, idolatry doesn't always lead to that kind of rejection of Christ in the gospel. Idolatry isn't a sin simply that's reserved only for those who, who decide to worship false gods. Idolatry isn't just for people who decide, you know what, that Christianity stuff is stupid. I don't want any more of that. Idolatry isn't just for the heretics. It's it's even for believers. Even believers who have a deep faith in Christ can temporarily fall into idolatry. And it happens more often than you might think. Because all of our hearts are fickle. We're people who are, yes, saved by grace, without question. But we're still fallen and broken. We're still capable of, of some Of some pretty bad things we 're still sinners in the process of sanctification right? we 're not sanctified yet god 's not done with us yet, and so we 're still in that process, but more than that, we live in a world then that is also broken, around people who were very broken. And there's literally millions of things and people in our lives all competing for your time and for your attention and for your affection, screaming, pay attention to me, love me, care for me. There's lots of things in our lives to draw our hearts away from God, things like money and material possessions like this man. Of all these things, they can, this can potentially draw your heart away very quickly. It's very easy to begin loving money and your stuff too much. Money and possessions are always screaming for attention. That's why we like nice cars, right? So I like nice things. No one ever says, no, I don't want that raise. That's okay. And that's what, that's what happens to this man. This wealth gets in the way of his love of God. His money becomes this great desire in, inside of him. He wants it more than anything else. And this is what brings him his greatest joy his His wealth. And the same thing can happen to us. Now, before you say that, well, that's not going to ever happen to me, let me just ask you a question. It's not a pointed question. It's a, a probing question to help you examine your own heart. And the question is this, how much of your stuff, how much of your money, how much of your possessions do you actually give away? And I'm not talking about the stuff that you don't use anymore. I'm not talking about the stuff that you don't want anymore. I'm not talking about that busted lawnmower, right? That barely runs. I'm not talking about that closet full of clothes that you can't even wear anymore. I'm not talking about, you know, all the junk that you just feel guilty about throwing away so you got to find somebody to give it to. I'm talking about regular sacrificial giving. Regular sacrificial giving. I'm talking about intentional generosity, I'm talking about the kind of giving that demonstrates that God is more important to you than your money. The kind of giving that says, God, you're more important to me than my stuff. What percentage of your resources do you give away? Is it 1%? Is it 5 Is it half a percent? Maybe less? And don't get me wrong, right? I'm not beating you up here. And this is a question for you to examine your own heart. I'm just trying to help you see how quickly money and material possessions can become idols to us. They can become so important to us. They can draw us more and more away from God, our affections towards them and not God. And we're all susceptible to it. Understand that I am susceptible to that. That's why regular percentage giving is important in the life of the Christian. That's why Kim and I do not give away 10% of our income. We give away 11 We want to go a little bit above that. right? We give 11% of my paycheck away. The moment it hits the bank, the moment we deposit it, I go to the push pay app on my phone and I give it away to the church right now because I do not want that to be something that pulls away my heart. We give away that, that first 11% of our income without hesitation, without even blinking about it. Because what we want to do is say, Lord, you have my heart, Lord, not my stuff, right? You are first in our lives, not our money. Your, you get the first portion of what we earn because, Lord, you are more important to me than money and the stuff that the money can buy. Regular sacrificial giving is a way where we, tell, we can tell where our hearts actually are. If we're giving begrudgingly, then we know where our hearts are. Because the truth is, if you are not giving regularly somewhere, and, and believe me, I don't care where you give. You can give here, you can give to some other charity, Right? but if you're not giving regularly somewhere and you're using most of the resources you have on yourself, then your greatest love perhaps might not be God. It might be your stuff. Now, I'm not talking in absolute terms here. And the reason why I don't talk in absolute terms here is because everybody has different circumstances. Everybody has different situations. Everybody has needs in their lives that change. But what I am saying and what I will say is that possessions and money are very seductive and they can draw our hearts away from God like it did for this young man. In fact, that's why the apostle Paul tells us, I believe, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. For through this craving, this desire, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, it is very easy to fall in love with our stuff. Money and possessions are very seductive and quickly can become an idol in our lives, and our hearts. And so can our relationships. I mean, if there is anything that can compete with our affections for God, is our affections for other people. Be they our spouses or our children or our parents or our grandchildren. Maybe our friends or our best friends or our heroes. Our love for people around us and those that we look up to can cause our hearts to gravitate towards them away from God. And don't get me wrong here, okay? I want you to hear this. This is, this is important. There's plenty of love in your heart to go around. If you get in the right order, if you do it the right way, if you set your priorities straight, there's plenty of love to go around. You can love God and all the people in your, love, I mean, in your life with a deep affection and a deep love, deeper than you possibly imagine. But our relationships, if we're not careful... They can become out of balance and draw our hearts away from God and towards people individually. And you might think, well, that seemed kind of weird. Think about this. How many of you have known people in your life who have claimed to be Christian, who sincerely are walking with God, but at some point they begin to hang out with a new crowd of people who have a different set of values. And slowly over time, they begin to change, to be more and more like these friends to the point that God's not even, like, in the picture in their life anymore. I think we've seen that. If you've been a Christian for any time, you've seen that phenomenon. I mean, they will say, well, I'm a Christian, and they will still maintain that, but they're no longer plugged in to the church, and they're no longer in Bible studies, and they don't really spend time with God, right? And, and, and next thing you know, they're not even really reading the Word, and their lives begin to reflect more of those that they're hanging out with than, than being a follower of Christ. Or how about those people who love God deeply, but they struggle to tell their loved ones, the truth. People who struggle to confront their loved ones who are in sin with the truth. People who simply refuse to share the hope of the gospel with the people they love because they don't want to be rejected by the people that they care about. People. Who, there are people who even compromise the, their, their views of the truth just because they don't want to be at odds with someone they love. In fact, a really good friend of mine He told me about his experience witnessing to someone um, at work who was a faithful member of the LDS Church. And my friend, he was on fire for the Lord. He was ready to tell him every day about Jesus. He would come to him every day prepared. He would read his Bible. He would study the word. He would come and answer this guy's questions. He was ready to, to, to help this guy see the light of Jesus. And finally, this guy says, I don't want to hear another word from you. I don't want to hear any more out of you. I'm sick of it. And before my friend could defend himself, this man says, I want you to understand, I know. I know that you're right. I know that my beliefs that I claim to have are wrong. I know that Joseph Smith is a false prophet. I know that, that this is not the way to God. I know that the LDS church is a false church. But what do you want me to do? Is this question. My mom and dad were raised in this church. My grandparents were raised in this church. My great-grandparents were raised in this church. My kids, all my kids are raised in this church. And so are all my grandkids. My entire family, my whole world is wrapped up in this church. If I renounce my faith, do you know what that would cost me? If I were to renounce my faith, I would lose it all. I would lose my entire family. They would reject me. They would disown me. I would lose my entire social structure. I know the truth. I know the truth. But the price is too high for me to pay to really follow God. His exact words. Now understand, this man deeply loves his family. I identify with that. You should too. But the problem is, is his love for his family is greater than his love for God. You see, people around the world continually, when they are being offered the gospel, they have that same choice, and people are choosing Jesus all the time. But this man wouldn't do that. Now, before you become too sympathetic about it, what you need to realize is, as as heart-wrenching as that is, it's still idolatry. We're still loving something else more than God, loving something else more than the truth. Anything that you love more than an idol, including your family, including your friends, anything you love more than God can be an idol in your life. And, and, and before you say, well, Jesus is so nice and he wouldn't, let, let, me, let, me, let me share with you Jesus' own words on this very subject. He says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you might say, well, that's a really heavy burden, you know, to bear. And then Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, the single most important relationship in your life absolutely must be God. It must be God. Your greatest love and affection must be directed toward God. In fact, fact, your relationships really should be ordered like this. God first above all else. Then followed by, if you're married, your spouse. And then if you have children, then your children come after. And then comes the immediate family and your church family and all your friends and everyone else. There should be no one that you love more than Christ. No one. He is to be your supreme treasure. I want you to understand, I live happily in the knowledge that my wife loves me very deeply. And she's devoted to me. But her first love is Jesus. And she knows that she is my best friend. She knows that she is my greatest human relationship here on earth. I love her with all my heart. But she knows that my greatest love is Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear me on this. The worst thing I could do for her, the worst thing I could do for my family, the worst thing I could do for everyone around me is to make an idol out of my wife and love her more than I love God. In fact, I can't love her the way that I need to love her unless I love God first. And that's the thing. You can't love anybody in your life the way that you really, truly need to love them unless you love God first. Because there's something about the love of God that penetrates your heart, that gives you the ability to love people deeper, more than you can possibly imagine. And I'll, tell, and I'll point you to several couples who would tell you the same thing. It happens all the time. Relationships like money can draw our hearts away from God. And so can things like entertainment and Technology. How much time do you spend watching television? How much time do you spend playing video games? How much time do you spend staring at that little bitty screen that you carry around with you everywhere you go? And I say that as a guy who carries his little screen around with me everywhere I go. Right? Now compare that to the time you spend with God. What about, what about reading the word? What about being in prayer? What about just meditating? What about just thinking about God? What about talking to someone? What's the first thing that you look at when you wake up? Is it your Facebook feed or is it your Bible? What's the last thing that you think about before you go to sleep? Is it what somebody said on social media or how good God has been to you that day? And now understand, right? You know, I'm not trying to give you a set of rules to live by. Okay, that's if you—if that's what you take away from here, then I've failed. Okay, I'm not saying don't do this. Don't. This is not about giving you a set of rules. What I'm trying to do is not to give you legalistic rules. I'm trying to do is give you litmus tests so that you can examine your own heart with, so that you can ask yourself the question, do I love God more than I love technology? Well, how do I know? Do do I worship God or am I worshiping all the time at the altar of entertainment? And how do I know? Because in our modern context, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of things that are competing for our heart's when it comes to entertainment and technology and hobbies and interests, right, there are lots of things that we can spend our time doing. Right? It's easy, if we're not careful, to, to drift away from God. Right? We, have, we have seen it happen before. You have seen it happen before to people. People change their lives. They, they get into a new thing. There's a new little hobby that they're doing. There's a new interest that they pick up. And that becomes everything their whole life is revolved around. They hang out with a different group of people, and suddenly their lives completely change. They drop out of church. They're not reading their Bible. They're out of fellowship altogether, and the next thing you know, they look like just the rest of the world. It happens all the time. And there's lots of other things that can distract us from God as well. I mean, we can spend the next several weeks talking about it, but I think you get the point, right? Anything that you love or desire more than than God can become an idol in your life. Anything that you love or desire Anything that can draw your attention, anything that you can really become obsessive about, right, can become an idol. And we can create a long list. We can talk about sports and your career and your stature in the community. Even, even your service as the church can be something that you value more than you value God. Pastors have to guard themselves against this all the time. Pastors can fall in love with being pastors more than they are in love with God. Pastors always have to remind themselves who their first love is. So really, anything that you love can draw your heart away from Him. In fact, as John Calvin, the reformer, said, our hearts are idle factories. Not like factories that are sitting idle, but like factories that produce idols. Right? We're prone to wander. Right? Our hearts are prone to wander if we would let them. They, they drift towards idols. So what do we do then? What's the, what's the solution to this? Well, the solution is you must make God the love of your life. You need to love God above everything else. In fact, Jesus says it very clear. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Of all the things that the Bible says you're supposed to do, this was like number one. Like this is the first and greatest commandment, right? You were to love God with everything that you are. Right, which means is he's to be the focus of your heart. He's supposed to be the center of your identity. Our entire lives are to be oriented around this relationship with God. And the rest of our lives are to be an expression then of that love. Our love for God must define everything else. Our love for God must define how we act as parents. Our love for God must define how we treat our spouses. Our, our love for God must, must define who we are as children to our own parents. Our love from God must be, should, should be influencing our roles as employees or employers or students or community members or neighbors or friends. Our love for God should define how we act when we're driving, when people cut us off. Our love for God should, should influence how we treat other people, especially strangers. Our love for Christ must be the center of, of who we are. Every facet of our life should be influenced by that love. And not just in this room. Not just at church, but at home, at school, at work, in the doctor's office, at the grocery store, even at the DMV, right? While you're on vacation, even when maybe you're talking to that collection agent on the phone. Every time, every, every facet of your life is to reflect your love for God because God is supposed to be the supreme love of your life. Now, you may think, Sherman, sure, I that's great, but what does that look like? I mean, how do I get there? How do I how, how do even accomplish that? What, what, is, what does that love even look like? Well, the great news is, if you'll actually take the time to read this, there's a lot of information about what that looks like. But let me share a couple of things with you. The first one is, is in the book of John, chapter 14, where Jesus says to his, his disciples very clearly, If you love me, keep my commandments. Pretty simple. G- Loving Jesus is really about obedience. If you love him, you'll obey him. If you love him supremely, you'll do what he says to do. Again, he says, um, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You see that Jesus is making a direct correlation between between your love for God and, and your obedience to his word. Now, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to follow a bunch of rules to prove that you love God. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is if you truly love God, if your heart is indeed set on him, if he's certainly the center of your life and the supreme affection of your your life, he's the greatest joy in your life, then you will naturally become obedient. That obedience will be just a byproduct of your love from Christ. It's just a consequence of that. Now, by the same token, if you're someone who reads the word, but then refuses to do what, what God says, you refuse to obey for whatever reason you come up with. And and you're going to have to examine yourself and ask yourself, do I really love God? Because a person who lives in willful sin, who continually walks in willful sin, cannot rightly say that they love God greater than anything else, that they love God supremely. It's a contradiction in terms, actually. If you practice habitual adultery, if you're a habitual fornicator, if you're a chronic gossip if you're someone who who refuses to forgive, if you are willfully prideful, or if you engage in sexual immorality continually, you may have love for God. It might even be a deep love for God, but He is not the supreme love of your life. You may love God a lot, but He is not the supreme love of your life. Loving God produces in us obedience toward His Word. Again, and I'm not saying perfect obedience. Please, understand because no one not one of us are going to be perfect this side of heaven it's not going to happen but it will certainly be evident in your life if god is your supreme love it'll be evident in your obedience people who love god naturally begin to obey him the next uh, text i want to look at is is uh, john chapter 21 verse 17 where jesus asked peter a very pointed question repeatedly he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, so that's Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, Peter was grieved being, uh, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I absolutely understand the context of this, this particular verse is addressing Peter's pastoral role for the church. But there is an application that we can take away from this. And the application is that if you love Christ, then you'll serve Him. That that loving Christ is about service. If Christ is the center of your life, if Jesus is the supreme love of your life, if He's your greatest joy, then service, like obedience, will be a natural byproduct of that love. It'll just happen. If you love God, you will, with all your heart, you will want to serve him by caring for people and ministering to them and ministering to the people around you. You will desire to express your love for God by serving and loving other people because loving God is also about loving other people. If you love God, you will begin to love what God loves. And I'm going to tell you, God loves other people and not just some other people, but all of them, all other people. Now, not only did Jesus say that the greatest command is to love God supremely, but the second is, is, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because God loves them. The natural byproduct of loving God is you begin to love what God loves, and God loves other people. Which means your neighbor isn't just the people on either side of you on the street. It's everyone you actually come in contact with. Every person that you come in contact with is your neighbor. And the kicker is that includes the people that you really don't like that much. That includes the people that you struggle to love. That includes even the people that you say that you hate. Because Jesus expanded the definition of of who you're supposed to love to every possible human being, including your enemies. In fact, very plainly, he says, you have heard it said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. That you can be one of God's children. Then you need to love your enemies. Now, you might say, well, Sherman, you just don't understand. I mean, I got some people that really have done some bad stuff. I really struggle with this. And I want you to understand, I do understand. Right? <laughs> More than you might even realize. But I want you to hear me on this. Your ability to love other people including your enemies is directly related to how much you actually really love God. I'll say that again. Your ability to love everyone around you is directly related to how much you really love God, which means you cannot say that you love God supremely in your life. If you hate someone, I know that might sting a little bit. I know that might not be what you want to hear, but loving God is about loving people. And loving God is about obedience to his commands. And Jesus commands us very clearly to love everyone else. Which means if you hate someone, God is not the supreme love of your life. I mean, you might love God a lot, but he's not the supreme love of your life. Now, I'm not saying that you're, you're unsaved if that happens. I'm not saying that you don't have deep heartfelt affection and love for God. But if you harbor hate in your heart for someone in your life, God is not the thing that you're loving more than anything else. Something else has taken that place. You've become distracted at least on some level. And so how do you fix this? How do we how do we get there? How do we learn to walk in love with God where he's supreme? Well, I would like to tell you that there's like a five-step solution to this, but there's not. Because this is not like this simple checklist of things to do. Right? What it is is it's a process of growing in our relationship with God. It's about growing to know him better. And like all relationships, they require they require time. So the first thing it means what you need is you really need to make that appointment and stick with it. And I know we've said it now four weeks in a row, but I, I think it's important. That's the reason why I have repeated it. Right? If you do not have alone time with God, if you do not have a time and a place to spend with God every day in a relationship, because think about this. you your friends, the people you care about. You don't become friends and care about them without actually spending time with them. Right? If you want God to be the supreme affection of your life, you've got to spend time with him. It's as simple as that. And that means you have to prioritize that time. Because you and I both know you can wake up in the morning with a to-do list 20 pages long and never, ever, ever talk to God. So you have to make it a priority. So set the appointment if you haven't done that. Number two, you really need to spend time hearing what God has to say. You see, it's hard to develop a, a real good friendship with someone if you don't listen to them. I mean, you might think that they're your friends, but they might think, man, that guy never ever even hears what he has to say. He's doing all the talking. We need to hear what God has to say. And the way you do that is to be in the word of God reading the word, meditating on the word, being in Bible study, and then doing what the word says. If you want to make God the supreme love of your life, you must be in a position to hear him in his word. And then you really, really need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself all the time who you are in Christ. You need to remind yourself that you're a child of God. You need to remind yourself of what the truths of the gospel are. And whenever you begin to feel superior to someone else around you, the gospel needs to remind you that you're no better than anyone else. Not anyone else. You see, the truth of the gospel is that you were saved by grace through faith. And God didn't love you because of who you are. God loved you in spite of who you are. And whatever you might have against someone else, remember God probably has 10,000 times that much stuff that he could hold against you if he chose to do so. But instead he showed you mercy and grace and we should do the same. And then finally, if you're going to learn to love God, then you need to set your heart on him and make him the, and make him the focus of your life. And if you're going to do that, then you unequivocally need to be plugged in somewhere and stay plugged into God's family. You need to be, need to be plugged into a local church Because I'm going to tell you, for whatever we might say here in America, there's not any any examples of, the Bible knows nothing about Lone Ranger Christians. They don't exist. You will not grow to spiritual maturity. You will not become the person that God is calling you to be in your life. You will not make God the supreme love of your life on your own. It doesn't work that way. It never has and it never will. You were created by God to be a part of, of a family, be part of a church. You're creating part of his body. Right? We're we're to build each other up and not just the universal body of the church, but talking about the local body of the church. Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but look at this, but encouraging one another all the more. So as we see the day drawing near, if you're really going to learn to love God, you need to be a part of a local church family. And I've said before, if this one doesn't suit you, there's there are other ones that you can go to, and I can help you make that decision. But you need to be plugged in somewhere. Because that's what church is for, right? It's for the equipping of the saints as it says in Ephesians. It's for equipping us to, to grow to our spiritual, spiritual maturity. That's why the mission of First Baptist Church is to, cr- is to help create spiritually maturing Christ followers. We're here to help you in your relationship with, with Christ. We want you to know him and then grow towards spiritual maturity, learning to love God above all things. We want to help you to keep your heart and your mind and your eyes set on Jesus all the time so that you are not distracted from God in this chaotic world, so that you can hear his voice and so make, so what you need to do is make that time alone with God a priority. Stay in the word, soak it in, preach yourself the gospel every day, stay connected to him in the body of Christ and your love and affection for God will grow. It will absolutely grow. And then you can then begin to be the people that he calls you to be, which is people that shine the light of Jesus and the dark world around us. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... We love you and we thank you so much for your your grace and mercy. We are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your love that you love us in spite of us. And Father, help me and help us, Lord, to make you the supreme affection of our hearts, knowing that there are going to be things continually drawing us away. There are going to be things that are continually calling, calling out to us. But help us to remind ourselves to set our hearts on you, to spend time with you regularly, to be in your word, reading hearing your voice. Help us, Lord God, to just make you the centerpiece of our lives, knowing that you, Lord, are in control and that you're sovereign. Help us, Lord God, to walk in that. Help us to love you supremely so that all of our other relationships would flourish because of that. Father, we pray that you also would raise up our hearts to, to love you to a point where we just can't but help but go out and share the hope of Christ with our community around us, that we would tell everyone we encounter about the love that we have in Jesus. Strengthen us today and meet people where they need to be met, whether it's emotionally or physically or spiritually with God. And be glorified in what we do here at First Baptist Church. We love you and we praise you Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.